Thank you for listening to the Bible preaching ministry of Dr. Tim Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. And a glorious Lord's Day to each of you, and welcome to First Day. What a busy and blessed week it has been here, as Pastor Luke mentioned. Something for all ages going on here at the campus and all around the community. Let's do be praying for this week. We're going to be global missionaries in our own backyard. And I just know God's going to use that. Please pray. The Commands of Christ is our series. Today's session, today's message, is number 19. If our counting is right, and we don't know when we're going to stop this, but uh, we're going to continue. For a time, four essential qualities of an extraordinary Christian. Now, we all want to live lives of significance. I am sure that 99% of us want to leave a positive, godly impact on our world, on our marriage, on our family, our church, our business, our culture. But often, we're not really where where to start. Maybe we even imagine God can't use us to make a difference. I'm here to tell you that you can make a difference and God is certainly willing to use us. Author John Maxwell said, ordinary people with commitment can make extraordinary impact on their world. And I agree wholeheartedly. The Bible is clear. Committed believers are God's plan A for touching the world. The question then is the this morning, on your journey, what is the next step that God is calling each of us to take? I put together a little outline here that might kind of give us some idea of where we're at. Steps, spiritual steps of where we might be. The first step is that of an unbeliever. An unbeliever is the sad and, might I say very quickly, dangerous state of living without knowing God or really without your purpose in life is. You're just existing. Then there is the seeker. Maybe a better word would be questioner, as that the Lord says. Nobody really seeks the Lord. But in a sense, you're questioning, you're exploring who God is and who you are to God. And may I say very quickly... The only reliable source to find that out is through the Word of God. And then the third step is a believer. Those who say yes to Jesus as their Lord and as their Savior. They say yes. Say yes to the dress. And then there is step number four, follower. Maybe a better word would be a disciple of Christ. These are those who want as much of God as you can possibly get. I mean, you just want God. You want everything you see in Scripture. And I tell you, getting to that step is a great moment of just 
launching in, saying, Lord, whatever you want, that's what I want. But the final step, and that is really the step where we really begin to soar for the Lord. And that is being a laborer. We know that we're on a mission for God. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to be a pastor or a missionary, especially. It just means that somehow you are working, you are praying, you are giving, whatever the case, to multiply the kingdom of God every single day to everybody you can possibly talk to everywhere you are. The fact is, every week, each of us pass dozens of people that you do impact. In some cases, you don't even know you do. They may bag your groceries. They pick up your trash. They might deliver your mail, drive next to you, or park in the same parking lot, or work in the same building. There was a popular Christian author at the turn of the 19th century, J.R. Miller, who had an interesting quote on this. He said, there have been meetings of only a moment which have left impressions for life, for eternity. Every one of us continually exerts influence, either to heal, to bless, to leave marks of beauty, or to wound, to hurt, to poison, to sting otherwise. The fact is, when you make it your mission to be a laborer for Christ, not just a follower, but a laborer, you value what you have from God and your is your goal in life to touch those for Jesus Christ, you have arrived to that gold medal Christianity. And the fact is, you can start anytime. You can start today. You can start tomorrow morning in your own home. Maybe you can get up early, a little extra early, make coffee for your spouse, breakfast for the kids, maybe prepare their lunch, and then take time out to read the scripture together and pray. Maybe even sing a little song. And before you leave, pray with your wife. Pray with your husband. And say, let's dedicate this day to the Lord. Simple things. Take maybe a few moments. But I will tell you, if you will do that, maybe put on some soft praise music. When you get up in the morning, pull the shades back. You will be amazed at how different the atmosphere of your home will be. And the stories that you'll begin to share around the dinner table. And then imagine what would happen if you took that same positive influence and you begin to expand it at work, maybe in the grocery store, no matter where we are, in society. The fact of the matter is, this world of ours needs quality people, extraordinary people of Bible faith, the real deal. And so in today's Commands of Christ series... We're going to share four essential qualities that God said, if you want to be that extraordinary influencer for God, here's what they are. Laborers. Laborers who know God. And if you want to know God, you have to know His truth. A man was in the courtroom and he was asked to swear to this. Do you swear to tell the whole truth? Nothing but the truth, so help you God. He said, Well, if I knew the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, I would be God. And that is, I think, this morning where we're at. I want to make sure I know the truth, and I want to be one who shares that truth. 
That's what we're here to do today, to get the truth from God's Word. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed, and honor of the Lord. Father, we thank you for these things you're going to give us today. And all week long, Lord, I have prayed and looked over these words. And I'm thankful for the blessed privilege to be able to share them. Thank you for the wonderful time of fellowship already and sweet, wonderful music. Lord, my heart is surely blessed. Pray the Lord you'll bless each that are here, those that are watching with us from their own home or wherever, and then those who later, Lord, will be watching. I pray that God, or listening, that Lord, each one will feel your touch, and that they all will become those who become laborers for you. In Jesus' name, amen. We are in the Commands of Christ series. There are hundreds of Old Testament guidelines and principles, precepts, we call commands, we are told that we must follow these, and it is also our privilege to do so. But what many people don't realize is that there are hundreds of commands in the New Testament. In fact, there are approximately 900 of them, things that God says don't do, or things that He says you need to do, things that we shouldn't be, or things that we should be, things that we should add to our life, or get away from our life. And so that's what we've been going through, amazing laws that make for our best life. Today we're looking at qualities that every Christian should have, virtues that God says are vital, vital for our success. And so, first of all, our first quality of an extraordinary Christian that God says you need to have, do this, put this into your life, and that is to have faith. Number one, have faith faith. I'd like you to be finding Mark chapter 11 in your hard copy or your electronic copy, or you can look up here on the screen. Mark chapter 11, we're going to go to verse 22. We are in Christ's final days of earthly ministry. It is oftentimes commonly called the Passion Week. It is a glorious week in which our Savior suffered and bled, and died for the sins of mankind. As the chapter begins, Christ is riding into triumph, into the eternal city, Jerusalem. Several ministry events transpire in the chapter, ministry events. Jesus was always about ministry. He was on a mission. He was a laborer for the mission. Then he begins to have a heart-to-heart talk with his colleagues, his young colleagues, We call them the disciples. And he talks to them about the tremendous power of faith and how important it is going forward because he's about to leave them. He said, going forward, you have got to get this thing inside of you. You've got to be men of faith. And so he says to them, and let's read this together, please, out loud, if you would. Mark chapter 11, verse 22. Ready? Begin. And Jesus, answering, saith unto them, Have faith in God. Now, folks, faith is vital to a quality Christian life. All Christians should be people of faith. In fact, faith is so important, the early Christians were actually described by the phrase. They were called believers before they were Christ ones or Christians. As a matter of fact, Nobody actually even has the right to call themselves a Christian unless they are a believer. 
Or maybe we could say a faither. I am one who believes that God is who He says He is in Scripture. Faith is the fountain from which all other duties flow. Now, what is faith? A little boy said this. He said, faith is believing what you know ain't so. Well, that's actually not what faith is. It's actually the opposite of faith. Faith is believing what you know is so. Sometimes someone will say to you in a tough time, they will say, have faith, brother, have faith, sister. And it's often associated with some impossible scenario, some terrible scenario maybe even. And they're trying to encourage you with positive thinking, really. But that's actually not Bible faith. It's positive and it's good. There's actually nothing wrong with it. But it's not faith. Now, I'm a firm believer in PMA, positive mental attitude. I read books. I love it. I think it's a great way to live life. A pessimistic fellow said, Nothing is going well in my life. His friend said, be positive. You'll feel better. He said, okay, I'm positive. Nothing's going well in my life. To be honest, I think we all feel that way sometimes, don't we? But true faith transcends all of that. True faith is the word for belief or trust. What is it? You mentally agree that something is true, and then in your heart you say a heartfelt amen, or so be it, or it is true, to what God said in His written Word. Faith is being persuaded. Faith is being inspired. Faith is being thrilled even, but it's more than that. Faith is when that agreement in our mind and our heart turns to action. Someone once said that faith is belief with legs on it. It is when you add feet to your belief that it becomes true faith. Elbow grease to your trust that it becomes true faith. That is Bible faith. Now I want you to notice in this verse five features of faith. I think you'll be blessed by it. The first feature is the authority of faith. Notice what he says. Have Faith in God. Have faith in God. That is a divine command, not a suggestion. God is saying, you need to have faith. That's something you need to do. Paul emphasized the connection of faith and obedience in the amazing doctrinal book of Romans. In the final chapter, in the next to the last verse, Paul connects the two. He said, faith really is about obedience. Look what it says, Romans chapter 16, verse 26. But now is made manifest, or it's made something that we can see, by the scriptures, that's where faith starts, by the scriptures of the prophets, really of all the Old Testament teachers, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. The Bible says that a wonderful truth has been made manifest. Now, it's always been around, thank God. The Bible says that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The gospel of grace has been here forever. But it has been made manifest in this era that we live in. What is that truth? The gospel. That's the 
truth that he's talking about. How did we get to know the gospel? By the scriptures of the prophets. The writings of the Old Testament speak about Christ. Here, Paul is saying, we're simply using the writings of the Old Testament to make manifest the wonderful truth, the gospel. And he said, here's what it is all designed to do. It is designed to produce faith in you. In all nations, by the way, every nation needs Jesus. Every nation. It make, it's, the gospel is not a faith for America. It is a faith for all nations. All nations need to accept the gospel. The Bible says if you believe the Bible, you'll have faith. Now notice what he says. But you have to obey. Faith really is obeying the gospel. It is obeying scriptural truth. What God is saying is, faith is not hocus-pocus, it's not willy-nilly, it is not smoke and mirrors, it is not some feeling. No, it really boils down to obedience. It is obeying the Scriptures. Second of all, notice the objectivity of faith. What is the focus of faith? Have faith in God. Have faith in God. Not in a creed, not in a concept, not faith in faith. (laughs) There is a movement in the world, word of faith they call it, or sometimes it's just called the name it and claim it people. But whatever the fact is, their faith sometimes seems like it's not in God, but it's faith in faith. God wants us to have God as our object. And then the exclusivity of faith. Thirdly, the exclusivity of faith. Have faith in God and God alone. That is, Jesus said, I am the way. He didn't say, I'm a way to God. The Bible says that all that is necessary for salvation is to have faith in Jesus Christ. And that is also what's necessary for our sanctification. And so, it is faith plus nothing else. Or as the Latin is, sola fide. Sola fide, only Christ. Faith alone. And then there is the responsibility of faith in these verses. The responsibility of faith. Have faith in God. Everybody is responsible personally to have faith in God. I'm glad that your daddy has faith. I'm glad that your mama has faith. I'm glad that your husband or wife or whatever the case has faith. But it is not their faith that is going to change my life. It is my faith. Every one of us need to have faith in God. Nobody can believe for somebody else. And then finally, notice the urgency of faith. Have faith in God. Now. Don't wait. That's what the tense of that phrase is. It's something you've got to do right now. Not when you get around to it or when you feel like it. Hold on to that right now. Get a hold of it. Hudson Taylor was a pioneer missionary to China. He said that these words of Christ, hold on, have faith in God, could be translated, hold on to the faithfulness of God. I like that. Hold on to the faithfulness of God. And as long as I'm holding on to the faithfulness of God, you can't go wrong. What is the greatest thing you can do to build your faith in? I'm going to give you the three M's. These are not in your notes, and so you can... 
write these down real quickly or just uh, memorize them quickly. Or take a picture. But number one, memorize. That's the first M. If you want faith, you need to memorize a scripture. And that takes repetition. Just take little bite-sized chunks. Don't try to memorize all of one book. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. That's a great thing. But for many of us, just a little bite-sized can be a great benefit. Memorize. The second M is meditate. Memorize takes repetition. Meditation takes concentration. When we just really concentrate on the Word and roll it over in our mind, roll it over in our spirit, not just reading it once, but getting it, memorizing it, and then just rolling it over, just thinking about it. And then the third M, memorize, meditate, and then mention. Number three, mention. That is, mention the verse in prayer. Pray the Scriptures. That takes application. Memorization takes repetition. Meditation takes concentration. And mentioning God's Word in prayer takes application. When you literally take the verse and use it as a prayer request back to God, your prayer life is going to take new heights that you've never imagined. Why? Because God is faithful. That's what David said in Psalm 119. He said, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Your faithfulness. Hold on to the faithfulness of God. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. Pray the Scriptures. Hold on to God. And your faith will come alive. Three schoolboys were asked in Sunday school to write their definition of faith. The first one wrote this. He said, Faith is taking hold of God. The second one wrote, Faith is holding on to God. The third wrote, Faith is not letting go. And that's it. Actually, it's all three of those. It is taking a hold, and then it's not letting go. Why? Because you have a Scripture. And if you have a scriptural truth, then you don't have to let go of that. That is true faith. In order to have an extraordinary Christian life, you need to have all kinds of wonderful Scripture just rolling in your spirit, thinking about it all week long, every day. Four essential qualities of an extraordinary Christian. Quality... It's been said as never an accident, but it's a result of intentional effort. Have faith. There's a second quality, and that is have convictions. Be a Christian with strong convictions. What are biblical convictions? Well, they are assurances based on the Bible. It is confidence knowing that this is truth. Here's what Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11 says. Again, would you read that with me? Ephesians 5, verse 11. Ready to begin. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. There's that phrase again that we're looking at. Have no. These are things that God says you need to have qualities in your life. Here it's in a negative context. He's saying don't have fellowship with the works of darkness. Here he is Reiterating the principle of separation. God's people need to stay away from evil. The doctrine of biblical separation pervades the Old Testament as well as the New. In fact, the Psalm 
texts are full of verses about this. Biblical separation is not hating something. In fact, it's actually loving something. It's loving God so much that I'm 100% loyal to Him and His Word more than the world. Here's how David said it in Psalm 26 and verses 4 and 5. Now remember, David is an amazing man, a tremendous leader of a nation, military strategist, successful. He is, he is at the top of his game. And yet he saw it was his responsibility to be very careful. Even though he did a lot of associations with others, he said, I have not sat with vain persons. Neither will I go in with dissemblers, those who just to argue and against the things of God. I have hated the congregation or the collection, those who gather together, of evildoers. I just stay away from that. And I will not sit with the wicked. Now David was a great man and he had a lot of responsibility as a leader of a nation. And he, in that regard, would talk to just about everybody. And I'm sure he'd be respectful. And he would even maintain a casual friendship when required. But notice what it says. He said, I won't sit down with them. Now I will have a casual friendship, but I won't sit down with them. That is, and listen closely, I will never have, this is a conviction, I will never have a close friendship with a Bible-rejecting person. Every young person, every man, every woman needs to have that conviction. I will never have a close, or maybe you could say intimate relationship a friendship with anybody who rejects the Bible. That is what he was saying in this verse. The weeping prophet Jeremiah in chapter 15, verse 17, he lamented. He said, I don't get it, but I accept it. Because of the truth of your word, Lord. People, he didn't say it in those words, but we would say people canceled him. That is, he was left sitting alone many times. He was separated from them. He didn't do it, they did it. Why? Look what it says in this verse. I sat not in the assembly of the mockers, nor rejoiced in their evil. I sat alone, not because I especially wanted to, because of thy hand. Because of my association with you, Lord, I had a very lonely existence in one sense. For you have filled me with indignation. He wasn't upset with God. He was just simply saying, that's the nature of my lifestyle. Because I've chosen God's people. Alone, but never lonely. Now here's what Paul said again. Back to Ephesians 5, verse 11. He said, have no fellowship. The word there comes from two words. Soon, meaning with. Koneo, or koinia, which means to partake of something. This is more than a partnership, however. What he is saying is, is don't, because it's in the present tense, what he's saying is, don't have an ongoing fellowship. Don't have an ongoing participation. That is, don't make it so much that you think like them, you act like them. It's not talking about occasionally you fall off the wagon and you do this or that. I mean, we're, we're living a wicked world and sometimes things are going to happen. What he was saying is this, don't choose that lifestyle. Don't let those worldly attitudes absorb into you. Because when you do, and here's what he's saying. He's saying when you partake of it, when you, when you fellowship with it, when you make it part of who you are, 
then you actually become part of their deeds. It's one thing to, you know, you see it and you, so maybe the friendship gets out of bounds or whatever, but it's another that you are, it's part of who you are. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. A boat in the water is by design. But water in the boat, it's a disaster. Quality Christians are in the world, but we are never to be of the world. Now I want you to further notice in this verse, not only was there a negative separation, but there is a positive admonition. Notice what it says, but rather reprove them. He said, don't go there, just rather reprove them. It's an interesting word. The word there, I'll give it. I'll give a spelling of it. E L E G C O. It's a Greek word. Elego, I think is how you pronounce it. The word means to convince or to convict. It was a word used in Greek law, in the court. It was not merely replying to an opposing attorney, but rather it was an utter refuting of their argument. It was just decimating the argument that they came to court with. God said, rather than let them, rather than just become part of their lifestyle, do the opposite. I want you to refute them. I want you to stand against them. Here's what Jesus said in John chapter 3 to that regard. John chapter 3 and verse number 20. He talks about this hating and separation. He said, For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light. John chapter 3 and verse 20. Neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. It's that same word there, elego, reproved. What he was saying was, since you're born again, because of that, by its very necessity, You wear a garment of light. You may not even recognize it. But when you walk around, you just emanate light because that light is within you. Those are your biblical beliefs. And by design, by design, the world is going to be offended. People say, oh, I just don't believe in offending people. Well, then you can't be biblical. Because even if you don't say a word, your lifestyle will offend people because... The very nature of the word reproof is to offend. Not in a negative way, but in a truthful way. We reprove the world by a lifestyle. Literally, our lives are silent sermons. Pauline and I went to a restaurant once that was very dark inside. In fact, it felt like a cave. I thought we were spelunking, I must admit. I kind of figured I was going to walk in there with my hat like Harrison Ford. Well, there I was, walking around, fumbling for the chair. We needed a flashlight to be able to read the menu. When the food did come, we ate by faith and not by sight. <laughs> Gradually, however, I noticed something that I became used to the darkness. The objects that were there were able to be seen more clearly. I became used to the darkness. And let me say more and more today, I think too many modern churches are getting used to the darkness. 
The depths of present-day human depravity are too vile for any word in our English language to even describe. We are not even seeing normal, if you want to use the word, moral corruption, but rather evil, demonic combinations of wickedness literally never even heard of in the history of mankind. And it's not as when I was growing up, the bad stuff, the evil stuff, you know, we would say it's over in the red light district or on Skid Row. No, what is going on that is so evil and wicked is showing up in the top brackets of society. It is in senior administration. It is in leading places of academia. It is in elite medical schools. Sinister brainwashing going on. And gradually, even churches are being desensitized to the evil. And one of the signs we are getting used to the dark is the way we give it new names. Nobody even talks about adultery anymore. They call it open marriage or we have an affair. Sodomy is now a long letter, LGBTQ. Lawless thugs are just expressing their frustration. But Jesus clarified the true motive, as we read a moment ago in verse 20. Everyone that does evil hates light. That's why they're doing evil. They love darkness because their deeds are evil. I will tell you one thing. The early Christians did not dim their lights to match the times. In fact, highly educated Paul. He was brilliant. He was one of the most educated people in Israel at that time. God gloriously saved him. He was accused then, after he got born again, of being a fool because he was identifying with the evangelicals of his day. Look what it says in Acts 16. Acts 16, verse number 20. He said, They brought him to the magistrates, saying, These men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city. They trouble our city. That just means they were so different. The garment they were wearing, the separation garment, was so different from the world. It was just different from mainstream culture. But I will remind you, in the ancient Rome, for example, the emperors, the saints in Rome, literally lighted the streets with their burning bodies. Christians may have met in the catacombs, but their light just illuminated the world. And we too, Jesus said, are a light. We're a city set on a hill. And this is no time for the church to get used to darkness. This is the time to turn on the light. Early Christianity was aglow with the light of Christ. And everywhere they went, they were pitched against this dark world. And that's what it says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11. Have no fellowship. Have no fellowship. Because they're unfruitful. It's a work of darkness. Rather, reprove them by your light in your life. The early Christians believed that the gospel was the only hope of the world. The early Christians believed that without Jesus, all were lost and every religion false. All opinions invalid other than that which were biblical. But today, more and more churches are succumbing. They're becoming woke. Let me tell you something. We need more Kirk Camerons. We need more Riley Gaines who stand up to the woke and to the weird and to the wicked and say, no, we believe in God. 
And that's what we need more of. You know, every week we hear of churches caving and pandering to the woke. Let me tell you something. I am so anti-woke, I'm practically in a coma most of the time. In fact, I'm so anti-woke, I thought a misogynist was one of those therapists that helps muscles relax. By the way, uh, we discovered, and I'm happy to share it with you this morning, a scriptural reason why we are standing against the left. Here it is, Ecclesiastes chapter 10 and verse number 2. You're going to like this verse. Ecclesiastes chapter 10 and verse number 2. A wise man's heart is at his right hand, but a fool's heart is at his left. There you go. That is courtesy of the good old KJV. Thank you, Rusty Abernathy, for sharing that. We need more Pauls. We need more people who say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Can you imagine what would happen if one of our presidential candidates stood up and said, you know what? I don't want to tell you. The answer is more churches. More gospel-preaching churches. I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm all for science. I'm validating the Bible. I'm all for all the things we do to make a stand for God. But folks, it is the gospel. We've been creeping around in the dark trying not to offend when we should be marching around the world with the light of a loving Savior. That's what God said. If you want to be a quality Christian, have faith. And then number two, have convictions. And then number three, have impartiality. You can't be a prejudiced person and be a good Christian. You can't be a biased person, ungodly biased person, and be what God wants. Look at James chapter 2, verse 3. My brethren... Very heartfelt. He said, my brothers, look, I love you. You're my brothers. I'm not going to, you know, get rid of you here, but I want you, to, I want you to know something. Have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. He wouldn't be anything like this. The Lord of glory with respect of persons. Have not, or meaning it's already been going on and I see it. And we need to stop it. There should be no partiality in our churches. Stop showing surface judgment. Stop being so superficial about things. Understand the true meaning of things. Now, the etymology of this word, the beginning of this word, is a nasty Middle Eastern custom. We see it even today. Where people use appearance or even manners or even tone of voices gestures to decide whether they're going to like somebody in the first few seconds. It was a bad thing, and that's really what the word partiality meant. And he was saying, don't do that. That's just not right. Bold Peter in the first epistle, chapter 2, verse 17, said, honor all men. He didn't say fellowship with them in the sense we already saw. Don't go to their darkness, but honor them. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. Every person, really, in some sense, should feel like an honored guest in our presence, certainly in our churches and our homes. Try to people, try to make people feel important, because they are important. They're important to God. I read about an owner of a coffee shop. He had a new employee, and he pointed out to him, he was training, he said, uh, pointed out a customer who came in every day named Bob. 
He said, now, when Bob comes in, he's very pleasant. He tips well. And you'll begin to know his coffee drink. And you'll get to the point where I'm sure you will, before he even reaches the register, you'll have his drink ready for him. Bob's fun to be around. He said, but most of the customers are not Bob. He said, the not Bob's come, and they may only come once or twice, but he said they don't have as much color or fun. They don't tip as well as Bob. But the not Bob's are still very important. And so he said to them, he said, when it comes to this store, every person that walks in that door is Bob. Just remember, they're Bob, so treat them well. (laughs) Well, I think that's a pretty good idea. That's a wonderful precedent that whoever comes in, treat them like Bob. I mean, you're uh, someone I like. I'm glad you're here. Why? Well, first of all, because everybody is created in God's image. Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. There must never be any cliques or popularity contests in a church. I'd remind us, being included and valued feels awesome. Being ignored and underappreciated and unappreciated just does not. When I was first, when I was in Bible college many years ago and first married, somehow I ended up as a salesman in a men's clothing store. Interestingly enough, it was called the man's shop. Well, I was stationed in the Pointy Hills Mall there, and I want to humbly announce that I was number two in the total sales in the company, even though I was a part-time salesman. Really, uh, to full disclosure here, I had uh, two secret weapons. And both of those secret weapons are what I would say God-related. The first one is that I never told anybody about, but I'll tell you about, and that is I prayed about my sales every day. And I would write down on the back of a little little business card the amount that I wanted to sell that day because we got a little commission in addition to the uh, small hourly wage we had. And so I would pray that God would send them in. So that was my first secret weapon. The second secret weapon is what we're talking about here. I simply honored all men. What I meant by that is I was genuinely interested in them. Whether I sold them or not, I was happy always to, and I tried to, but really I just began to talk to them. And I discovered something about sales, and that is this. Good sales isn't about pushing the product. Good sales is about getting to know the person, and then in a sense because you're their friend, they want to buy what you have. How do you do that? Well, the key is asking questions. That's how we make people feel comfortable. That's how we make them feel not, we don't show partiality. Here's what Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, verse 4. He said, look, don't everybody just look on your own things. Look on the things of others. Think about others. Now, you can't think about others without asking them questions. Now, you may not be the kind of person that asks a lot of questions. And I'm not talking about being like the Gestapo, you know, and asking them 25 questions before you're going to move in. No, it's just meaning treat everybody like Bob. How you doing? How you? How's your week been? How's the day going? And you know, getting a sense of where they're at. I love what the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 12, verse 10: Be kindly affectioned to one another in brotherly love. 
in honor, preferring one another. We need to make everybody feel important. Why? Because they are important. If you're sitting down and someone walks into your room, jump up. I don't care if they're two years old or 102 years old. For some of us, it takes a while to jump up. <laughs> you ought to try to get up and walk over to them and give them a hug. The fact of the matter is, we ought to make everybody feel honored. Christ, understanding Christ and what He's done for us leads us into a proper view of others. When we look at Jesus, it definitely makes us realize how much we ought to love other people. Why? Because we're all on the same level. Everybody is a sinner. And and when we become saved by grace, that's what puts us at the same level. Grace, the Bible says, flows down. And so let's get humble. Let's humble ourselves and realize, I don't want to be a spiritual snob. I want to honor all people. You know, in the ancient world, people were routinely and sometimes permanently categorized because they were Jew or Gentile, slave or free, rich or poor. God said, stop it. At the cross of Jesus, everybody is the same. You know, a significant part of the ministry of our Lord was breaking down those walls. When we look at other people through the eyes of Jesus, we get rid of our partiality. In his autobiography, Mahatma Gandhi wrote that the caste system in India, he felt like, was dividing the people and really destroying society. And even though it still is existing today, he wanted to change it. So one Sunday, Mahatma Gandhi decided he would attend services at a nearby church and talk to the minister about becoming a Christian. When he entered the sanctuary, however, an overzealous usher refused to give him a seat and suggested that he would go meet and be with his own people, basically a caste system in the church. Gandhi said no. He left the church, never returned. And here's what he said. He said, if Christians have caste differences, I might as well remain a Hindu. How sad when we treat anybody with partiality because of any reason. If we want to be extraordinary Christians, we need to have faith. We need to have convictions. We need to have impartiality. And finally this morning, we need to have mercy. Be a person of mercy, compassion, sympathy. The half-brother of our Lord and Savior in that brief but powerful book, Jude, said in verse 22, And of some have compassion. And of some have compassion. He's talking about dealing with certain groups. You make a difference when you're like that. Verse 23, And others, a different group, save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted by flesh. Have compassion. That Greek word is used 31 times in the New Testament. 29 times it's translated mercy. Two times compassion, one of them being here. The idea is to feel sympathy with the misery of another person. The word is meaning you empathize, including, and listen closely, including the fear in your own spirit that what they're going through, you could be going through. You need to have a little mercy because, you know what? We might be going through the same thing someday, and we're going to appreciate mercy. It is a God-like characteristic. Those who have received God's mercy can give it to others. 
What is mercy? Mercy is not softness. Sometimes people are so soft, I mean, they wouldn't even touch a fly. That's not mercy. I mean, maybe a good quality in a sense. It's not sentiment. What is mercy? It is compassion in action. It is not softness or sentiment. It is compassion in blue jeans, doing something about it. God calls the church to not only stand up for that which is right, but to reach out to people who are hurting. And that's what he's asking us to do. These false teachers had hurt so many people. The false cultural ideas of the day had destroyed so many lives. Here, Jude said, we have got to help these people. And the way to do that is through showing mercy. How do you do that? Well, back up one verse, verse 21. Keep yourself in the love of God. Looking for, or we could say looking at the mercy of God. Just remember how merciful God has been to you. And then in that regard, I can maybe be merciful to somebody else. Seek to be an agent of mercy towards those who have been beat up and beat down by the world. There, we are never more godlike than when we're merciful. Ephesians 5 1 says, Be therefore followers of God. The word literally means to be an imitator of God. I will tell you, nothing imitates God any more than His mercy. I mean, God's mercy must be one of His great attributes for sure. Look at verse 22 again of Jude. Of some have compassion, making a difference. There are two groups here mentioned that I would like to point out, and I'll just give them a name. There's a lot of uh, people that kind of have ups and downs about these, but here's how I'll name them. The first group is that of the doubters. The doubters of some having compassion, you make a difference. There are those who have been so beat down by this world that they just need somebody to patiently but firmly show them Scripture. You have to be patient with them. Doubters. But then... Not only are there doubters in verse 23, and others. There's another group. These are those who are deeper in their unbelief. These are the defectors. And notice what God says about them. Very interesting what He says in verse 23 here. He said, and others, show them mercy, show them compassion, save them. But He said, you better do it with fear. You better be very, very very careful because they are so into their false stuff. They're so into their their false thinking, their fake concepts, that there is a very real possibility of contagion. And so he says, you know, maybe the best thing for these people is to pull them out with fear. Well, maybe the best way is to step back and pray for them. They're a perfect prayer target. People who are defectors, you don't need to spend long hours one-on-one with. I say that again. Nobody in this room needs to spend long time with a defector of the faith thinking that somehow you are going to bring them to you. If you spend long time with a sick person, the sick person doesn't get well, you get sick. That's why God says it's okay to reach them and they have, when they need our mercy, but do it with fear. Now let me, as we close here this morning, help us understand the connection between the truth of God and the mercy of God. In Psalm 85, verse 10, God says, Mercy and truth 
are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. What he's saying here, and I'll say it, I hope you'll write it down, all real mercy is rooted in truth. Now what I mean is this, genuine mercy never minimizes sin. The truth of God is that all sin must be punished. God has to punish sin because His truth demands it. God says if you understand the truth of God's law, the truth of God's wrath, then you will cry out for mercy. God is not some sentimentalist who says, well, yeah, you sinned, everybody sins, whatever. You know, it's all good, no harm, no foul. Folks, God doesn't work that way. He doesn't say when you come to judgment day, God's going to say, look, I'm a merciful God, everything is forgiven. Universal salvation is a false doctrine. It is something we have to accept. All the mercy of God is based on the truth of God. And let me give you one final verse this morning to just set this deeply in our minds. A riveting scripture for sure. It describes these rejectors that we mentioned a few moments ago, these defectors. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 29. Get the picture here, please, very clearly. God said if a person, of course we're talking about an unsaved person, not a person who had trusted Christ, but if an unsaved person, they just refuse the mercy of God, then here is in fact what they're really doing. They have trodden underfoot the Son of God, and they have counted the blood of the covenant wherewith He was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. Do you think that Jesus Christ could have died in agony, shed all of His blood? You could sit in a church building just like this. You could hear a preacher preach about the love of Christ, that He died for you, and think you could just walk out, and God's all good with that? Folks, God warns, when we know the truth, when we hear about the grace and the mercy and the love of God, and we don't respond to that, God says, here is what you're really doing. You are walking on the blood of my son. And I, you say, well, pastor, I would never do such a thing like that. But I will tell you, and listen closely this morning. My friend, if you walk out of this building, you will walk out either under the blood or over the blood. And that's not just a Baptist preacher saying that. That is the Holy Spirit who is telling you, you cannot say no to Jesus without walking on His blood. I give you this illustration and we close this morning. Suppose you are very sick. You go to the doctor and the doctor indicates from tests that what you have is terminal unless some radical treatment is taken. You plead with the doctor, doctor, please, I... I will do anything. Is there anything that can be done? He says, well, there is, but honestly, it's very, very, very expensive. I mean, only a few people really in the world could cover such a thing. Doctor, I don't have any money. I don't know what to do. Is there any way you could possibly see to do this? Well, the doctor says, I'll see what I can do. And so the doctor comes back. He comes back and visits you, and you're feeling terrible. There's blood on his shirt. His hands are trembling. You look at him. You say, Doctor, what happened to you? Where have you been? He said, Well, I went to get your medicine. I had talked to some people. I went to some foundations. 
And just to be honest, I, I emptied my entire bank account. In fact, I mortgaged my house. My son and I were on the way to bring you the medicine when we had a terrible accident. My son died in the accident. I have just left the morgue. The blood you see on me is literally this son, the blood of my son. But here's what I knew. I knew that this medicine was so important to you, I had to give it to you. And so, here it is. You look at that blood-stained vial of medicine and it just repulses you. The situation just you draw back from and you say, no, I, no way, I won't touch this. You just throw the vial aside, it splatters against the wall. Doctor, don't let me die. I don't want to die. But he just gave us the solution to our situation. You'd say that's unthinkable. My friend, it is unthinkable. But it's no more unthinkable for us to come to the judgment day and to say, Oh God, I want mercy when throughout our life we walked on the blood of Jesus. And God put His darling Son on the cross and He bankrupted heaven in order to buy your salvation, the medicine for your cure. The basis of all mercy is the truth of God. God says have mercy, but always remember what God did to give us that mercy. Our heads are bowed this morning and our eyes are closed for essential qualities. Have faith, have convictions, have impartiality, and then finally, have mercy. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.